You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and not Rick today because he is working on reports for our SEO marketing plans and and figuring out wedding plans and doing all the the fun stuff that deserves a break you put out a lot of fires this week so. <laughs> yeah yeah if you all can just like give an encouraging message and a high five and a prayer for Rick then I'm sure he would appreciate that he's got he's got a lot going on on this episode we really wanted to talk about and kind of dive deep into the Jellop announcement where they are Kickstarter's official digital marketing provider and kind of the ramifications of what that means for the industry. And then we had some really fun, well, I wouldn't, I I guess is, if marketing can be called fun, we definitely wanted to talk about, I guess, other related conversations that we've been having alongside, you know, just various client situations. And so join us for a roller coaster ride of epic marketing proportions. Uh, here we go. And now it's time for Nerd News. There's a new tabletop show that is being produced. It's called Tabletop News. Well, it's been announced. And it features Becca Scott from the Good Time Society. A lot of people from Roll20, Dimension20, a lot of these kind of like tabletop role-playing game shows. And one thing I really like about the Good Time Society is their production quality. Like the set design is always like really professional. The, you know, the camera work is already, it brings like this level of professionalism to the industry, which which is really cool to see. So I'm excited that something like this, and I really, I really wish them the best because I, I think stuff like this is good, good for the industry. It's probably going to make it a bit more, hopefully get some attention and make it a bit more mainstream. So the, the goal is just to be the one-stop shop of all tabletop gaming news from board games, card games, role-playing games, war games. And I believe it's a, they're planning for a weekly show. They've got a Kickstarter that they're going to be doing in March. So we'll include some links in the show notes for you to check out. And I think this is something worth supporting. I think this is something that could benefit everyone, you know, every creator. We need more kind of high-quality board game coverage. This type of stuff, I think, is can reach mainstream. Um, we've seen... Uh, some news break into the mainstream a little bit more often lately in regard to tabletop, and that's great for everyone. It's like a rising tide raises all ships, as it were. So um, you can find some stuff on their uh, on their Twitter feed, um, on the uh, the twits uh, tweet on the Twitter, and we'll we can include a link to that as well. But um, this is pretty fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it. I think Becca Scott is an excellent face. Um, for the industry that she just, you know, with, with, has worked with Geek and Sundry for a long time and, you know, producing great content and she, she makes it things very interesting. And I think that for me, having anything that can match the, you know, maybe as the spiritual successor to Will Wheaton's tabletop, that would be kind of the, the dream, but, um, yeah. you know, I'll take what I can get, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> So let's move on to the main section of news that really inspired this entire podcast, which is that Jellop and Kickstarter have an official partnership. Kickstarter is, of course, the 800-pound gorilla in crowdfunding right now, and they just announced through an update on their blog an official partnership with Jellop as their 
digital marketing company. You know, of course, being a, a digital marketing company that specializes in tabletop products and whatnot. Um, I mean, we've done tech products, we've done watches and other things like that too. But it's a, uh, it, it might seem like a scary thing on the surface, like, oh no, Jellop's going to take all of our business. But I actually think the exact opposite, uh, that it's a, a good thing for us personally. But um, I thought that I would get into just the, maybe, you know, some of the pros and cons of what it seems like Kickstarter is trying to become, which is like an all-in-one system. And, you know, other pledge managers are uh, seem to do kind of take a similar approach or rather other crowdfunding uh, companies are seeming to take a similar approach. And then also, you know, this seems to be a direct response, in my opinion, to Backerkit's crowdfunding platform launching. Kickstarter, I mean, Backerkit was a marketing company and a pledge manager for Kickstarter campaigns. And now they are, of course, they have their own crowdfunding system and, and you know, nice, decent projects launching on it. And uh, Kickstarter now curiously it makes Jellop the official digital marketing company. I think that that is possibly to just push Backerkit out, you know, maybe, maybe to kind of eliminate a direct competitor from, you know, from having as many clients as they once had. What do you think about all this, Sean? Yeah, I think there's always a danger when a company tries to be an all-in-one solution. I think people are somewhat skeptical that they can do all of those things competently. I think this is why WordPress has been so successful is because it doesn't try to be everything like an all-in-one solution, like something like Wix or Squarespace. It's very much, here's the kind of basic framework. And now there's plugins with developers who specifically develop this one plugin that does this one thing super well, and you just stick it into your website. And I think... That seems to be the the way a lot of people go in terms of web web development. We also see this with Facebook and YouTube and all these big tech sites where they will see their competition doing something saying, oh yeah, I'll take that. And then they try to adopt that into their system. And usually it's, it always just comes across as a ripoff of the thing that was done better and um, originally done on another platform and never really gets integrated into the culture that is on, on those sites. So it's interesting to see. I don't know if it's the right step in direction, but I... I I think it still shows that Kickstarter is trying to innovate. They're trying to make the service better and better and better, which is only a good thing. If anything, it's going to add more competition between all the different platforms and hopefully stabilize some of the uh, the pricing in terms of the services, make make the pricing more competitive for us, you know, the the users and the customers of of their services. So I don't know if it's going to be a good a good step for them necessarily, but I do think it's going to be a good step overall in creating a, a healthier e- ecosystem in the crowdfunding yeah. space. I, I applaud Kickstarter's initiative to innovate. I mean, ever since their new CEO took over, it sure seems like there's a lot of direct, a lot of things happening. And I, I take this as a great sign overall for Kickstarter. While at the same time, I'm a little bit hesitant about the, I guess, the quality of such a partnership with Jellop. I think that Jellop is really the only, like, I mean, if Kickstarter came to us and said, hey, we want crowdfunding nerds to be our official marketing partner. We just wouldn't be able to handle the level of, or the, the thousands of projects that Kickstarter, um, you know, launches every month. And so, yeah, I mean, there's anywhere from, you know, 300 to 500 tabletop projects by themselves at any given time. And and so I feel like Jellop is of the correct size to be able to handle a lot of these clients. Also, there are people that otherwise would just simply not use marketing services that now have an option. A lot of first-time creators, you know, that are um, 
concerned with, you know, just spending anything may actually have a, an option. But I think that the con that I have with this whole thing is that when, you know, as you mentioned with WordPress, using Kickstarter as the, as the WordPress analogy, Kickstarter used to be the only legit crowdfunding platform. Indiegogo was one, but they, but Kickstarter really dominated and they formed an ecosystem of other vendors around their, their product, which, you know, their core offering was a crowdfunding platform, the ability to raise money because people believed in your idea. That was, that was what it was. And you're not doing something complicated, trying to sell equity in your company or a percent of sales of your future idea becoming reality or anything like that. They're, you're just giving people the opportunity to help support you. It's like, you know, me going to my mom and asking her for, you know, 10 bucks so that I can get a movie ticket, except it's on a grand scale, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I love the core offering of what crowdfunding is. And I think that when a when any crowdfunding company, GameFound, Kickstarter, BackerKit, and, you know, and, and Indiegogo and others, whenever they stray too much from their core offering, they actually, I think, lose market share if they stray too far. Where I think that this could end up, you know, benefiting Kickstarter is that BackerKit is now a chief competitor of theirs that is going to get kind of forced out of the of the Kickstarter space a little bit more because Jellop and BackerKit have very similar terms. They, uh, you know, we could talk about the pros and cons of the percent of sales model versus like the upfront pay pricing model, which we kind of adopted, but they are very similar in their, their execution. Yeah. I think that'd be worth pausing and, and going to that deeper because a lot of people listening to this might not realize that different marketing agencies have different pricing systems. Mm -hmm. So we operate in a very different way than how JLOP or BackerKit operate and it's done so intentionally because I suppose we believe that the way that JLOP and BackerKit fund their services isn't really conducive to the board game space or the tabletop gaming space where margins are so tight. It probably works better in tech industries where, you know, you, you make one sale and you get a, you get a, there's a, quite a large profit margin on that because the production cost to create it is, is rather small, but it doesn't seem to translate too well with the, the board game space because it's all about, you know, volume and there's a lot of sort of services you have to pay for to get a board game from <laughs> yeah. someone like from your head to someone's table. Definitely. Um, in fact, that percent of sales. So let's, let's talk about what this means. So I, uh, let's say, and I've, I've used these companies uh, myself. I have not personally used Jellup, but I've used BackerKit, which did a percent of sales. And I, we've had clients that have used Jellup that, you know, where we've been hand in hand working with them, uh, consulting with them over the whole experience. And so we have a lot, we're not just talking out of our, our butts. We're, we're actually talking from a lot of experience working with these folks. So the percent of sales model is they are going to spend ad revenue and, or I mean, ad money and, you know, on, usually on Facebook, sometimes on Google, but usually on Facebook and they're going to generate sales on your crowdfunding campaign. You will pay depending on the type of sales you're making anywhere from 15 to 22% of the numbers that they are able to track. And so it's, it's kind of, you know, let's just say, let's just stick with 15 
it, it's actually can get a lot higher, but 15% of whatever they're able to generate for you, that is their commission. You're also going to have to pay back the ad spend, which was just directly spent on Facebook. And, you know, so if they spent a hundred dollars and then made you, you know, three sales to, for a total of $300, you're going to pay that hundred dollar ad spend. You're going to have to pay back. And then you're going to have to also pay 15% of the sales they made, which is $45. So if they spent $100 in ads and made you $300 in sales, you are going to spend $45 because that's 15% of 300. And you're going to have to pay back the $100 ad spend for a total of $145 that you have to pay them for making you 300. And that's uh, you know about a two to one uh, return on ad spend. This is just a, um, or, you know, return on investment. Um, that's just kind of the simple Breakdown. example. Yeah. Uh, whereas let's say, um, a marketing company like ours that deals with an upfront pay pricing model, you're going to pay a flat fee typically, uh, upfront for us, we charge $600 for up to $3,000 in ad spend. So it's kind of like our, our commission is paid upfront. But, you know, however much money you make is not, you know, we don't, we don't care. So like we, we did Skyrim um, on GameFound and that made, you know, over one and a half million dollars. And we didn't, I mean, what we make uh, on, on a typical account like that, we would have made between two and $4,000 for our marketing company. So the, uh, you know, just depending on some factors, like how much money they're spending, if, if you're spending 10,000 bucks a month, versus $1,000 a month, there's obviously more time, attention, and effort and energy required to manage that $10,000. So that's our fee scales a little bit from um, ad spend at higher levels. But in general, I can say flat fee. You can spend up to 100 bucks a day with our services and you wouldn't see an increase in that in that fee. But I think um, one thing that makes Jailop and Backerkit's model so attractive to, especially first-time creators, is that there's no upfront costs. They say, we'll pay for the ad spend, and then we'll just bill you afterwards once you fund it. And that's very attractive. But the problem is, and this was rightly pointed out by our community because we had a post about this. And to be honest, I was actually a bit surprised by the amount of, let me say... Negativity. <laughs> negativity uh, is the right way to say it, um, about JLUP service. And some people rightly pointed out that in this uh, agreement with JLUP, they actually are incurring no risk. They, they have a win-win model here because they can spend lots of money on your ads. If it doesn't work out, well, it doesn't work out for them. They haven't lost anything. Whilst for you, well, you're sitting with a really bad conversion rate and also this massive mm-hmm. bill and, and ad spend, which isn't isn't great. Yep. Another thing it does is that it incentivizes these companies to try and get as many sales as possible, but not at the best price possible because they just get a commission on any sales. Also with our model, because we're not, financially motivated to have as many sales as possible, but rather to make your campaign as profitable as possible for you. So you're like, these guys are amazing. I'm going to come back to them my next campaign or whatever. That's more so our business model. We have a more, I suppose, holistic approach. We don't really focus all of the efforts on the Kickstarter campaign or the crowdfunding campaign. And I think this is something that people need to realize is that you need to think of your crowdfunding event as part of your business. And I think oftentimes creators, unfortunately, they spend 
they put too much emphasis on the actual live campaign. They're trying to hit a big number so they can say, oh, look, we raised millions of dollars on Kickstarter, but that might actually harm your business because you probably over, you spent too much to acquire people in that short time frame. Well, so if you were right. a bit more patient, you could have acquired those same people mm-hmm. at a much cheaper price over a longer period of time. So having a bit more patience can actually do a lot better, especially with Facebook ads. We mm-hmm. found that if you, if you really um, spend gradually and you, you increase ad spend incrementally, from like the beginning of your campaign all the way to the close of your late pledge, you can raise about the same amount of money, but it's not going to look as as you know fancy on on papers, so to speak, because people don't really see what how much you've raised on your pledge manager. They're only going to see the actual campaign. But your 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 business will be far more healthy as a result of that approach. And this is something that Chris Birch covered in a podcast that we'll include a link in the show notes. He he spoke about this. Uh, approach of keeping retail in mind. So, I, Andrew, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit, of, go into a little bit more detail on what I've covered there. Yeah, definitely. I, I love the the little branch getting into kind of protecting yourself on retail, but um, the definitely the emphasis I think is what is really kind of an important lesson to think about as a creator looking to bring on a marketing agency. If anybody is working on a percent of sales, I will say any reputable company. They certainly aren't, you know, going to try to scam you. There are lots of scammers out there, and you need to be careful. But companies that are reputable, I will say, Backerkit, Jellop, these are percent of sales uh, model marketing agencies, and and there are others. These two are kind of the the biggest two that um, you know, and also very relevant to our conversation. They are not scams. They're not. But what their their emphasis, and again, this comes from personal experience, both using these companies myself and working with uh, many of our clients who have used them, they emphasize spending money in order to make money. And the sad part is that a lot of the time, the money that they make you, when their fees are factored in and the ad spend is factored in, I mean, it's oftentimes far below the actual threshold required to make more money than you lost. Actually, the one benefit is if it's not working and you tell them to pause, they will do that. And you, you know, the money will stop running out of your account and you'll, you have to figure something else out because that didn't work. Right. Um, Whereas where, you know, like, let's say if you were to spend with a company like ours, um, you spend, you know, your 600 bucks, uh, $599 to, to work with us. And then you find Hey, this particular thing didn't work. Well, it it then becomes our company's uh, impetus to figure something else out. So, what I really love about our model, which is kind of that upfront pay, you've paid for a month of time in essence. And so, we our emphasis is not on trying to make as many sales as possible with the one trick that we know or anything like that. But if if things work, then we're going to press that and figure out how to make it work better. But if things aren't working, then we're our emphasis is on finding a way to make them work, finding a way to course correct. And I think that that's really important. I, I feel that the upfront pay pricing model emphasizes innovation, whereas the percent of sales really emphasizes spending as much ad revenue or as much money on ads as possible in order to generate commissions. So um, I've had experiences where Companies have uh, these companies have spent one thousand dollars every day on ads for losing campaigns. Really, really um, unfortunate. But that's where this 
the emphasis of the percent of sales model can can take you. Certainly, I don't want to disparage. Um, I'm not intending to disparage um, any of the marketing companies, and I work with them as well. Like I, you know, there are cases, like I said, where we have worked, you know, hand in hand with uh, Backerkit. Like I said, with Deliverance, I personally worked with Backerkit. And I'd say overall, I had a, a, it was very responsive. I'm not close-minded to working with them again. I ran my own ads at the same time, and I just found better results, you know, with with our internal ads. But um, there, uh, but Gelop is uh, exclusive. They require exclusivity, and uh, even Backerkit will tell you, hey, you don't want two people running ads at the same time, targeting the same market, uh, you know, the same audience on Facebook. It's just less efficient for everyone, which I agree with. Uh, but Gelop will uh, require that you do not have other ad campaigns running. They, yeah, I think, I think uh, that's an, another because reading the um, the comments of the thread we have in the crowdfunding nerds community or Facebook group, a lot of people were saying they were really put off by their sort of strict requirements that you have to mention that you use their service. You have to put it like in an email update. You have to include it on your landing page. So it's, it's very much on the nose. Like we use Gelop. Uh, we don't really take that approach with crowdfunding nerds, maybe to our detriment, because I think some sometimes people are like, oh, who, who marketed this? Sometimes you see the back kit banner on campaigns that we actually did like all the pre-marketing <laughs> and they just come in at the end and take the credit, which there's a problem. We need, need to resolve that if we if we see that. But I'd rather be in a position where people are like, oh, I love these guys. Uh, they did a really great job. I'm just going to, hey, how can I you know mention you on, on the page? You know, if that's something that they want to do, I think it's, it's far more natural than kind of like putting in the contract saying, you have to say that we did your marketing. I don't know if it has the same sort of thrust. You can almost feel like they're just throwing it up there because they have to. And I don't know how effective it is in convincing people that your services are good. Well, it definitely benefits uh, one party. Um, but and then in addition to that, actually, one of one of my biggest personal concerns is the, uh, the email list and access to the data. Um, at crowdfunding nerds, when we build marketing campaigns and we do all the marketing and build email lists and that kind of thing, we are doing it from within your own ad account. And that email list is something that if we have to, we create for you so that you can own it. And we do not actually have access to those emails. GameFound, for a long time, they used a pledge manager service that was free. So a lot of people used it. And they, but they made it clear, um, I believe that putting your, so Backerkit will charge a percent or a, uh, basically they'll charge a, a small percentage of your campaign. I think I had to pay four or $5,000 to just put my, or to use Backerkit as a pledge manager for deliverance. Whereas GameFound, I wouldn't have had to pay anything. GameFound will charge the same uh, uh, in regard to merchant processing fees. You, you're paying about 5% um, of the uh, whatever the pledge is to uh, GameFound, and then you're paying anywhere from like three to five percent to uh, the merchant service that GameFound uses, which is Stripe, Backerkit. You're going to do the exact same thing, Kickstarter, the exact same thing. It's very industry standard, but uh, Backerkit does have an upfront uh, price thing. And GameFound, before they launched their crowdfunding platform, they they and I believe to this day, as of the this recording, they still have a free quote unquote pledge manager that um, is uh, they they we're very upfront that, Hey, we're, we're, you know, um, going to keep and hang on to this data and, you, you know, leverage it in the future. And if you want your, you know, in essence, you're paying them with your email list and, and that sort of thing. 
Well, GelUp and BackerKid and all of these uh, companies that we are talking about, they run ads through their own systems and they get uh, or they build emails and they get customer data through their own Facebook pixels and other things like that. And you do not own necessarily the things that they are using. If you think in terms of a, if you're trying to grow a business, you want to own your clients. You want to own your customer list. You don't want an, an agency mm-hmm. holding holding that and then basically forcing you to use their services again because, well, they own your customers. Uh, that's not a, a good place. Not not a great way to build a business. The problem with building a business around YouTube is like Google technically owns your business. And if they decide to turn off the light switch, well, then there's not much you can do. So that's why there's always this need to sort of have your own website, even if you do leverage something like YouTube. It's the same. If, you, if you're you know leveraging Kickstarter, you really want to have a direct way of communicating with your clients. That's why we promote a direct communication with them through email. So it's, it's something to think about when you're building your business overall. So in terms of having a bird's eye view of the crowdfunding event, in terms of it being a success for your business and, and enables you to keep on growing, Amazon can become the bane of your existence. <laughs> and we've seen a lot of people do very well on Kickstarter, very well on crowdfunding platforms, only to be pwned when it comes yeah. to e-commerce because they've essentially made their own competition by not really dominating Amazon or having a plan to dominate Amazon so that by the time they have their games on their website, they've got a lot of competition on Amazon that's offering free shipping with Amazon Prime and they can't really beat that. And you're kind of left with an empty bag at the end of your campaigns. Like, is that it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah. Andrew, I know that deliverance is about to be manufactured and you're about to enter the stage of selling online, direct selling, e-commerce. What plans did you have to sort of tackle this Amazon predicament and maybe explain the the problem a bit more so people have a better sure. understanding of what, what the, the pitfalls are? Yeah. So um, to explain kind of what we're talking about here, I have a deliver, I'll use deliverance as an example. So we have the deliverance deluxe edition for $89 that we, that we, we uh, the pledge level on Kickstarter was $89 and shipping ended up being $12. So all in all, you know, you're paying whatever, $101 for the game to arrive at your door. Then our MSRP is $99 that, uh, you know, so player people that buy the game at Kickstarter are going to get a better deal than if they bought, let's say after we released the product on our own website, People are going to pay more. And actually, since we went to Kickstarter, even in our pledge manager, people are paying that $10 more and they're still buying deliverance, paying that $10 more, which is the MSRP. And that's kind of a um, one of the reasons that a backer would use you or would buy and invest into your Kickstarter because they're going to get a better price than they would later. There are other reasons too, but uh, you know the price is, is a big one that I'll come back to. You've got, of course... Uh, content. You've got the guarantee that if they buy, if they back your product on Kickstarter, they're guaranteed to get it first and they're guaranteed to get it. You know, it's possible that your stuff sells out and you don't reprint or that you don't reprint for a while and it becomes very hard to get. We've seen many cases where products become extremely expensive on the secondhand market. Every CMON product in existence does this where they print, you know, really high quality, awesome, very expensive products. And then when it reaches retail, 
you know, there's just not enough extra. So people sell this, uh, you know, whatever the Emerald pledge for $500 instead of the Kickstarter, which was only 250. And there are people out there that buy it at that price. So the secondary market can be kind of gnarly, but then the secondary market can also backstab you, which is that, you know, Hey, I've, I've made 5,000 units. I'm going to earmark, let's say 600 of them for distribution. So what you can do is you can say, you know, let's, let's just say, you know, fun again is on my mind because they're, they're closing their doors, but there are companies that offer you the ability to store your product in their warehouse and they'll try to market it for you to distributors, um, you know, or through kind of a distribution model that is like consignment where you're not paying or they're not paying you for warehousing your product. They're only paying you after they've been paid in essence, after your product is sold, then you'll get a check. So if you allow, uh, you know, so hit point sales is, was fun again's kind of arm that they would use, uh, impressions is a, is a, a consolidator. There are others that will, that will do this as well. I know, um, of several of them off the top of my head, but, uh, the idea is that you're, you know, I've sold, uh, let's say 3,200 units of deliverance right now, and I have 1800 units left. So I'm going to put some of them, or I'm going to obviously sell on my website. I'm going to consider maybe I'll, I'll create a, um, a seller's page on Amazon and I'm going to also create, or I'm going to also mark let like 600 of them available for retailers to purchase from my, um, warehouse. And let's say they do, you know, you'll get, you'll get people purchasing. It's going to be really hard to, to monitor who is purchasing. Um, you might have a deep discounter or a retailer, or maybe a legit retailer with a board game, a physical board game shop location that, um, that purchases, but then they jump up and or they turn around, put it up on Amazon for a cheaper price than you have it listed for on your website or that your Kickstarter was because, you know, if a retailer like, you know, for deliverance being $89 or 99 MSRP, retailers would buy it for 50. If somebody wanted to make a quick buck, they would buy the retail edition, six copies or whatever for $50 a piece, and then turn around and sell them for $70 a piece. That is lower than you could, than you could get it for on my Kickstarter. Um, it's not enough to keep somebody in business, like a, a, um, a warehouse or I'm, I'm sorry, like a friendly local game store, but you know, Amazon sells so much in volume that they make a killing off of, you know, adding a penny per product. So there is a benefit to these companies if they can sell enough units, they're going to make, they're going to make their margins. So what you find is you find people deep discounting and selling your product online after they have purchased it for 50% off. So you've made a little bit However, you are now, you've now created your own competition. So uh, for the sake of early sales, you know, you've, you have people that are selling stuff on Amazon and directly competing with you and you could compete with them on price, which is exactly how they're competing. So again, in this example, let's say somebody's selling deliverance for $75 and I'm, you know, I'm trying to sell it for 99. Maybe I offer free shipping. Well, of course, Amazon gives you the ability to have prime shipping, which is some of the best shipping options around uh, for a consumer. And people are really comfortable working on Amazon. So let's say you compete on Amazon, you sell your product at 75 bucks as well, just to compete, or maybe 74 to, to beat their price. Well, all of the 
future Kickstarter backers are going to say, well, you know, why did you sell this at 89? I bought it at 89 and I supported you. And now you're selling it for like 75. What they're going to do is you're going to teach them that they should probably just wait for retail mm-hmm. because they'll get it cheaper. They'll get it, you know, right on time and, and everything because you deep discounted your last game. Might as well just wait for the next one. That's a huge problem. So that, that you don't want to run into. But then the second thing is, let's say you decide not to do that. You're selling, let, let, I'm selling, let's say deliverance at $99 on my website. Maybe I'll give people a discount for $89 and free shipping now. I think that there is a, you know, as long as the, the price at, is at $89, you're not really going to get those Kickstarter backers to be upset. They certainly were able to get the product first. The free shipping is something that, you know, you pay 12 bucks to get the product way earlier and um, to guarantee that you get the product and to support it and to get all of the stuff that you wanted. I mean, all, all that, there is value in all of it. I think another thing to mention as well is that when, when you're talking about the, these retail pledges, you're not talking about the deluxe version. You're talking about a, a simplified version that is only being sold on your website after the fact. So even if they... They, it is a different price. The version they have is superior. Isn't that how you've set things up? Well, I actually, so every single retailer, I gave them the option to get a base game that is like standard edition and then a deluxe game that, you know, was the exact same as my Kickstarter backers got. Every single retailer grabbed the deluxe edition. They only wanted the deluxe. Not one retailer went with the standard edition. So I actually went and made, eventually made the decision to not support the standard edition in, in its current format in the future. I tried to get everybody to upgrade to deluxe and we have like a few dozen holdouts that uh, still have the standard edition, but we have like 3,170 deluxe editions that we've sold and like 30 standard editions. It's crazy. Yeah. The, the disparity, it's like, whoa. So, so anyway, I'm so that, yeah, so that's the, Definitely something else that can make you stand out is having a deluxe edition on Kickstarter and then a standard edition available at retail. Retailers like the special things though. So I think in distribution, if your game gets big, that you can make a retail specific edition of the game, something like Gloomhaven did with Jaws of the Lion or Chip Theory Games did with their Too Many Bones uh, game. They have like a really fancy version of Too Many Bones that you can buy that is the standard version of Chip Theory Games. But then... They offered a lesser version at, I want to say it's Barnes & Noble or Target for, uh, you know, for Too Many Bones, which is their most popular game. And that was uh, of lesser quality. So you still, as a Chip Theory Games fan, would want to back their Kickstarters because that's the only way to get the really high quality games. But then, so let's fast forward all the way till we're we're at retail. I'm I'm selling a product on my website. I have the option to also sell it on Amazon and I'm dealing with a deep discounter. Um, we've had these experiences with clients where they've, they've told us, Hey, you know, I have Kickstarters and everything, but I also have product that I really want to sell. I have stock that are from previous Kickstarters that did very well. And I want you guys to sell those games too. So, you know, we sell a ton of stuff for Modifius. We sell a ton of stuff for, for lots of other companies. Every once in a while, we run into the case where they created their own competition and, in one particular very memorable case, we were selling uh, or we were advertising for a particular product that I thought would kill it. And, you know, we were adver- a very unique game. 
and it just wasn't selling. And I was like, why is this not selling? And then I noticed that a product was the same exact product. I First thing, when, when that happens, I Google it. I'm like, I Google the name of the game and I look for who's selling it. And if there's somebody that's selling it for cheaper, that's oftentimes the easiest answer. It's like, oh, people are finding it. They're, they're liking what they see because this game is popular. And they did a Google search and found it for cheaper and bought that one. So Amazon is the king of creating your own competition with cheaper priced versions of what you're selling uh, on your website. And that is something that's very dangerous. That actually, uh, you know, we ended up not continuing the relationship with this company because we couldn't actually be profitable for them. But hey, well, there was one more thing really, really key is that, and, and you remember this too, Sean, we sold a lot of copies of that game or rather the, the vendor that was selling on Amazon at a cheaper price sold out of almost all of their stock. They had one copy left. And I think they started with 30 when we started the ad campaign and they ended up with like <laughs> one left. And uh, so that's where all the sales were going. And Andrew, in terms of Amazon, do they ever offer their, I suppose, partners, their distributors, people selling on their website um, discounts to shipping? Will they ever just bite the bullets and they will take some of the shipping? Because, you know, you, we have we have prime shipping so and they have their own distribution channels. So are they able to compete against, let's say, you as an independent retailer who's just trying to sell your, your own game using sort of a regular, you know, um, FedEx company or something, well, Amazon can undercut you because they've got their own FedEx company, so to speak, and they can then offer that discount to uh, their partners. Is that something that can can happen? Mm -hmm. So this is actually, it goes, it's a little bit beyond that, uh, a little bit more dastardly and devious. So when Amazon, you set your your cost of goods, you set the, um, the price that you want to sell it at, and Amazon is they will sell it at, at, they will list it for that price, but they have the ability to re So Amazon takes its cut. They, they take a cut of your product, which is, I can't remember what it is now. I want to say it's quite high, but um, they take a cut of your product to just sell it there. Yeah. So Amazon takes a cut, which ranges between six and 45% of what you're selling to pay. And it depends on the category, but um, they can actually reduce their cut in order to reduce the price of the product so that it, it can sell. And they actually, they have the ability to reduce the price of the product if there are, if they detect that there are sales that are dipping below. So let's say on Amazon, if you list, or let's say if I list deliverance for $99 on Amazon, and then I put it on my website for 99 and then Amazon, of course, they're going to find Kickstarter. Deliverance is going to be $89 on Amazon. I can almost guarantee you it's going to be, Minus ten dollars, which will save you, you know, whatever. So you almost need to mark it up on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. So, well, the thing is, it's, it doesn't really matter because you know you have to set your your cost of goods sold and and other things like that, and then you have to set the um, you know, you have to agree to all of their terms. So they'll lower the price to whatever they need to lower it to to be competitive. And this is exactly what they do in Seller Central. So when other people buy your product at fifty percent off. You know, as a retailer, they list it for whatever price they want to list it for. Um, you're going to find that those prices dynamically change based upon whatever starts selling. I mean, if people were buying my, you know, deliverance like crazy on Amazon, Amazon wouldn't lower the price. They would just make as much money as possible. 
if Deliverance wasn't selling that much, they would definitely lower, they would play with the price. Their, their system would play with the price. And eventually they would also charge you exorbitant fees for storage in, in their warehouses. But let's just say you, you fulfilled yourself instead of using fulfillment by Amazon, it would, they would still be able to lower your price. So it's really difficult to deal with people that deep discount and put your stuff online. And if I had one solution for you that would work, I promise you, I would tell you, but it is a constant battle. So the, the number one thing that I would recommend in regard to how to protect yourself and how I plan to protect myself is number one, you have to think about it ahead of time. You can't release a bunch of products and then say, Oh, now I'm going to think about in my Amazon strategy or my, my retail strategy. Like you need to treat this like a business. The best time to do that is before you get into this predicament is I promise you, no matter how you plan, you will get into this predicament. If your things, if your games are popular. Um, number two, I think it's really important to control all of your assets. So be the number one. And I, I would say guys, if I were to point out one company that I think does this very, very well, um, well, two companies, chip theory games, I think is the king of controlling their assets making just getting people extremely excited they have a fan base that's really excited for whatever they make and they sell only on their website there are very few places that you can buy a chip theory game other than kickstarter um, or well their last campaign i believe was on GameFound, um or their own website so so there's that and then i think stonemeyer games does a really good job of this as well they have a really dedicated fan base that buys product and pre-orders from them and they actually have a distribution network that they sell a lot. Um, so I think that they do a really good job of direct sales through, you know, new and you know, new announcements and whatnot. And they make the bulk of their money through distribution. But even Stonemeyer Games will run into the problem of having deep discounters on Amazon. That mm-hmm. you know, no matter how much they require their people that buy from them to um, to adhere to a particular price. There are, there are going to be people that mask their name, that buy from them, that uh, that try to conceal their identity so that Stonemaier Games can't figure out who they are to stop selling to them, um, which is a problem that I, I'm sure that that Jamie Stegmaier would would say that, you know, they're and in fact, I know that on their blog, they've he's he's uh, talked about how they try to deal with that. So. Let's say that deliverance is on Amazon and you're contro- you're controlling that, you're keeping an eye on it, you're selling it on your your own store like deliverancethegame.com. Are you also going to sh- upload deliverance to GameFound and have a permanent space on GameFound where people can sort of discover it organically there and sell through GameFound? So I there I plan on doing one of two things. It all depends on how things go after we release. A tabletop game it gets its I mean it's number one source of marketing are people actually playing the game around a table? And that, when I get, you know, 3,200 people sharing the game, you know, I mean, we'll have 10,000 games played in the first month or or two. That is going to cause sales. And I want to eat all those sales and capture all of the market share on my own website. So I do not plan when we release, I will not have Deliverance available on Amazon. If Deliverance sells out, then you know that that's that's my ideal situation. I will still not put it on Amazon. I will I will um, either uh, create another or make another print run and restock 
um, and then take a wait list of people interested in buying it. And when the game is back in stock, I will send an email to those people saying this game is available and that, you know, and then sales will uh, continue. Eventually, I believe I'll have to put it on Amazon. I believe Amazon makes almost half of all e-commerce sales go through Amazon now, which is crazy. Or at least all half or half of all e-commerce um, searches begin on Amazon. That invented. And, yes. <laughs> so I think that um, eventually I need to dominate Amazon. I need to have a listing on Amazon. In In both cases, I would like to not use distribution. I think that distribution, it's a model that is a little bit antiquated. It requires that your distributors market you and um, other things like that. I think that as long as it's selling well. So just just in terms of people who might not be familiar, dis- distribution or distribu- distributors will work on your behalf to get it into retail chains? Correct. Yes. And uh, that is if, you know, they'll they'll announce your offering. If it sells, then great. If if it doesn't really sell, then it it um, your distribution relationship or partnership will be generally short-lived. It's also oftentimes something that uh, a, a distribution relationship, something that you're usually only going to have when you're more established, um, or if the game was extremely popular, you know, in your let's say your first release or second release, if it was very popular, then um, like let's say Distilled by Paperson Games, it's very popular, so a lot of units they're going to have distribution there. And so anyway, the uh, the idea is that the longer I can avoid distribution, I think I would like to. Because I have a specialty product that I think has a clear market that people will want to buy it. You know, there's not a whole lot like it out there and, and that sort of thing. And I can I can build a community, really. It's like step one is releasing the first game. Step two is releasing an expansion and, and another game and so on. And developing a reputation for quality, developing a reputation for this particular intellectual property, and just really trying to build a fan base of people that love that love this game. So I think that it's possible that we change our strategy as you know as we um, just as we advance, but I, I personally see that for myself, I'm not as tempted by the by the idea of distribution as I used to be because it feels like, you know, marketing today is more about developing tribes and loyal followings than it ever has been before. And to control the thing that everybody is excited about, it's like in Dune, when you control the spice, you know, that's, that's really the the goal. Like to he who controls the spice controls the universe or whatever. I might be mixing up Smallville, like save the, <laughs> save the world. I don't remember. So your plan wouldn't be to have any type of presence on something like GameFound where people might find you organically just by you know perusing the site well i guess um you know if if GameFound would allow me the ability to put something there that can drive people back to my own website great or if i can have full control over that page and somebody you know if i make a sale i can make sure that it's at a particular price then that's great too the one thing that i'll say i i also now when i say distribution i'm not saying that i don't care about retailers because retailers, especially people that have a physical store, a storefront, that's kind of my, one of my main requirements is that, uh, they have a physical storefront. Those people I want to support because 
deliverance games are going to be sold at retail stores and they're, you know, and that's where people are going to find them and uh, retail stores. I think that's where people will play the game too. Um, other people might teach the game at that retail store and sell copies for me because they're just a fan of the game and, and taught a new person how to play and there it was on the shelf. So they, they buy it. I think that that's extremely valuable and I am cultivating my own list of retailers that I'm working with. It is nicer if you had a distribution relationship, I'll say for retailers, because, you know, retailers, they don't have a lot of time for, you know, sending emails back and forth to an individual publisher, every individual publisher that they have up on the shelf. It's just, they don't have enough time in the day to worry about that. So usually what they do is they go to one distributor or maybe a few and they order this, you know, these 15 games from this distributor, those 28 games from that distributor. And uh, so they much prefer you to be in distribution. However, I think that um, I, you know, I would rather work with a dedicated group of retailers and really help them sell their games. And um, so that's kind of, that's my strategy for now. Kind of so, avoid that. And then you know, we talked about being able to control the price. What have you heard of anyone who might have had the strategy of just completely alienating retail saying i'm not doing any type of retail pledge it's like here's the pledge this is it and if you want to buy in bulk then go ahead and that way you guarantee that you can't really be undermined as you've been talking about in terms of people saying well uh, they're a brick and mortar you know retail store and then they're going to deep discount on amazon you kind of can ensure that that never happens because well they're not getting it the the game from kickstarter or game found at a sort of retailer discount yeah you know actually one company that comes to mind is the is what what Cephalo Fair Games did with Frosthaven was, and Gloomhaven for that matter, was very smart. They sold, I believe Frosthaven was $160 on Kickstarter, and they only sold to retailers at $125. So they did not discount to $80 per unit of Frosthaven. They sold for $125. And then, of course, after the Kickstarter is over, they announced their MSRP is like $250 or $230 or something. So the, the retailers that bought in are happy because now they can sell at a really high MSRP. The Kickstarter backers are happy because then they get they got a really killer price. And then the deep discounters can't match that $160. Or if they if they can get close, they're still not beating the Kickstarter price. So all the Kickstarter backers are going to come when Cephalofair does something else. Okay, um, so so the goal isn't to uh, screw over the retailers, just get everyone give everyone a good deal. I think so. Can, I think that's kind of what can get in. Right. And I think that's what we want to do. The the one thing I'll say is that if you control your price and spend too much time on that, you might make, you know, full price sales, but maybe like five sales a month or 10 sales a month. You know, it's not, it, you know, you definitely want to be, be open to adapt your strategy depending on what's working. And if controlling your price means that you're not making sales, then consider opening up or changing your strategy. Um, or maybe counting that particular thing as a loss, you know, if, um, so anyway, that's, it's tough to, to, I guess, face that potential fact, but it's, um, a reality. If if you take nothing else from this, know that the, the, uh, path up ahead is muddy and you need to sort of prepare for it. Not just thinking about your crowdfunding event and trying to make as much money as you can on that one event. You do need to think about the future and how retail distribution and even direct selling 
What's that going to look like? And how can you make that profitable? And to be, uh, to really lead that, not let that be something that happens to you, but let it be something that you're you're actually kind of guiding and, and maneuvering through. So I think that's the big takeaway if if you've got this far. <laughs> yeah, and I think that you know controlling your tribe is is for me my personal you know bit of advice I would give. You absolutely need to control your your audience or control the the source of communication to your audience. That's why I really hate. Uh, when people only care about getting additional like Kickstarter followers, Kickstarter is the only one that can communicate with those people, the notification, right? And you aren't able to actively communicate with your followers on Kickstarter. Um, you can communicate with your backers, but not the followers. So yeah, so I guess, I guess, uh, you know, to, to wrap up, I feel like if you control the ability to communicate with your people, that is the most valuable thing. You, even if you have issues where others are trying to kind of uh, poach your uh, poach off of your good name, uh, you know they are deep discounting your product. Those people they will eventually sell out of your product, and you will continue selling your product. You just have to make sure that you didn't sell, you know, a thousand. They don't you they don't have to get through a thousand units before you get to finally start selling yours. I mean, if thirty of them show up at a time. And then they deep discount 30, then those 30 are sold. I mean, you, you're back in business again, right? So it's not a long-term problem that will plague you forever necessarily. The, the way to navigate through is to have a hardcore tribe of fans that support you and that want you, or that, that want more of your stuff. So find ways to build your tribe and to get your tribe to be loyal and more passionate about your products. And that's how you're going to make it through this. I think that is probably the answer to all marketing questions. If you have enough people that care about what you make, uh, they'll support you wherever you go. And so you just need to be able to be the one in charge of communicating with them. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.